self-development with tactics. So, today we're gonna go ahead with Zarathustra, or Das, or Das spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, very interesting book, but I gotta have to say, and I think that I've said it before, um, I wouldn't be able to decipher the meaning of the book without this analysis and also summary that, that I'm going through here. Um, I don't know if I'm just too inexperienced with Nietzsche's works or I'm, I'm just dumb could also be the case who knows but i think that i've stopped with on scholars since um on the line of education kind of seems familiar or sounds familiar as well as on the immaculate perception on the sublime ones well i couldn't actually tell but i'm well i'm just gonna go ahead with on scholars i have a good feeling that i haven't gone through this so yeah, on scholars begins with Sarah, and I'm once again gonna say Sarah, not Zarathustra all the time, just because of convenience reasons. Sarah relating an incident in which he is asleep under a tree when a sheep comes and nipples on the ivy wreath on Sarah's head. The sheep realizes that Sarah is no longer a scholar and it walks away. This parable is a symbol for the scholarly community that Sarah sees as a group of sheep who blindly and stumbly follow others. Sarah is proud that he is no longer a scholar in their old way. Instead, he says he is still a scholar to the children and also to the thittles and the red puppies. Sarah begins to listen uh, to list the problems with the modern scholars. Sarah used to be a part of their group, but now he has found a simpler way to be. He no longer needs to approach complex, useless ideas with poison as the scholars do. Their work, Sarah says, is useless because it only, mo only makes a modest noise. These scholars now hold a grudge against Sarah and try to silence him, but he will not be silenced. He will stroll with his thoughts over their heads. These scholars, which by the way was a quote now, these scholars cannot stop Sarah in his quest. This speech does not address the scholars directly, it only describes them. Sarah claims that modern scholarship serves other powers, such as democracy. Therefore, scholarship discounts men like Sarah as freaks too lowly for proper consideration. Sarah ridicules these scholars for not heeding his call regarding the overman and not understanding his notion of justice. Sarah says that human beings are not equal. Scholars are not permitted to want the overman as Sarah does because they have been subjugated by the ideals of modern democracy. On poets. The speech begins with a conversation between Sarah and one of his disciples. As Sarah relates, yeah, relates a lesson to his disciples, the disciple asks him why he previously said that the poets lie too much. Sarah feigns ignorance, saying that he doesn't remember saying such a thing. Sarah remembers and is actually laying a Socratic trap for his disciple. Sarah claims that he is a poet, and he asks the disciple if this means that he lies too much. When Sarah asks the disciple what he believes, the disciple answers, I believe in Sarah. 
Sarah begins teaching about the nature of the poet. The poet, he says, is attentive to nature. The poet creates gods and worlds between heaven and earth. But these gods and worlds are simply lies that enslave men. In this way, Sarah is a poet and because he weaves or waves the poetry of the overman and the age to come. This teaching makes Sarah's disciple angry because he feels betrayed by Sarah. Sarah looks inward to reconcile his deep revelation of the older man with the superficial relations of revelations of previous poets. Sarah is critical of the poets of previous ages because they created the gods that have kept man from realizing the state of overman. What is going on? Let me have a look out of the window because Yeah, I've had a bad feeling. And well, uh, the, 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 the fire, 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 brigade, fire, whatever. You know what I mean. Anyway, I uh, hope nothing happened. I hope everything is fine and hope everything is good. Um, well, let's see. Um... Where have I stopped? Well, actually, a fucked up thing. Zara is critical of the poets of previous ages because they created the gods that have kept man from realizing the state of overman. Zara is also honest about the fact that he himself is a kind of poet. Whoa, I've, I've read that. Zara tells his disciple that though he is a kind of poet, he is no longer. What? He is not like any poet that came before him, because his teachings are deeper than theirs. While they created false worlds and gods, Sarah teaches a greater truth. On great events. Near the blessed isles, 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 where Sarah has returned to his disciples, there is an island with a volcano that the locals believe is a gateway to the underworld. A ship of sailors stops on the island, and while they are on the islands, they see a vision of Sarah flying over them, saying, It is time. It is high time. The sailors are in awe of Sarah. They believe he is going off to hell. A rumor begins in the town that the devil has come for Sarah, and his disciples became worried. On the fifth day, however, Sarah returns and tells the story of the fire hound or hound. The fire hound, he says, is a disease on the skin of the earth. Sarah goes to find out why, uh, who this fire hound really is and where it comes from. He asks where it gets its nourishment and how it survives. Eventually, he challenges this fire hound. The fire hound or hound, whatever, represents a rhetoric of revolution. Sarah claims that, like human beings, revolution is a disease on the earth's skin, even though it promises change and virtue. Sarah draws out the fire hound by challenging its teachings on revolution. Such thoughts do not bring about real change. Sarah charges because they are bound together with ideologies. Real revolution is not about making the most noise, Sarah says. It is about communicating the greatest ideas. Revolution is just as hypocritical as the state it uh, purports to overthrow. As the speech ends, Sarah's Disciples have barely listened to his story and the teaching within it because they are too excited to tell him about the sailor's story and what Sarah's shadows said to them. Sarah realizes that his myth is growing too large. She begins to wonder about the word 
the words that the shadow said to the sailors. The Soothsayer. This chapter begins without warning, uh, with a nightmare prophecy by a Soothsayer. The Soothsayer says, I saw a great sadness descend over humanity. Everything is empty, everything is the same, everything was. Sarah awakens and realizes what the prophecy means. The long-awaited dark times of nihilism are approaching and his teachings are in danger. Sarah realizes that the prophecy is true and it makes him both wary and sad. When Sarah returns to his disciples, he tells them of another dream in which he is a watcher of graves. He asks for their interpretation and the disciple, whom Sarah loves, gives an interpretation that he hopes will cheer up his master. He tells Sarah that the dream means Sarah will laugh at all those whose teachings and wisdom only send others to their graves. He says that just as Sarah awakened from the dream and came back to himself, so his enemies will awaken from their dreams and come to understand Sarah's teachings. For a moment this makes Sarah feel better, but then he looks into the face of the disciple and sees that the interpretation is wrong and the prophecy of nihilism will come true. The disciple's interpretation is meant to make Sarah's Sarah feel better. His disciple wants to show him how loyal he is to Sarah's teachings. But what Sarah begins to realize is realize as the chapter ends is that his disciples have not been true to his teachings after all. This begins the closing chapter of the second part in which Sarah again realizes that his disciples have disappointed him. Sarah realizes that he must leave them at some point. Well, I do think that um, it is just not about following somebody and also not following Sarah, which means that he kind of got himself into a position uh, that he actually wanted to eliminate. On redemption. One day, Sarah is walking across a large bridge where he is met by a group of cripples. They tell Sarah that though the people have started to believe in his teachings, they will not truly understand until he is able to heal these crippled people. Sarah says that healing them would be the worst thing he could do. It would open up all the cruelties of the world to them. Sarah refuses to become a miracle worker, which is a possibility that tempts him. Becoming a miracle worker might raise his profile in the eyes of the people, but ultimately it will hinder his true calling. As Sarah finishes crossing the bridge, he is met by a giant ear that he realizes is actually a hideously deformed person. Sarah practices his teachings regarding pity, treating these crippled people with a hard hurt, heart, I'm sorry, in order to teach them the true way to approach the nature of the world. Sarah begins to teach his disciples. This chapter is the climax of part two. In essence, it is a climactic, climactic part of the whole book. Sarah asks his disciples what they expect him to be. A poet or a truthful man, a libertor or a tamer, a good man or an evil man. Sarah realizes that his true mission is to bring uh, will to the people, yet he himself is not even advanced enough to break the will from its ultimate captor, time. Though, uh, though will can liberate people, time is that which claps even the libertor in change. The will cannot be back and change time. It seeks to... Ah, uh, once again. <laughs> they will not go back and change time. It seeks to impose its power on time, but it is still constrained by time. This, Sarai realizes, is an ultimate flaw in himself and in his own will to power. 
on human prudence. In this speech, Sarah asks his disciple to try to understand this his double will. He explains how he longs for the overman, yet is restrained by his love of humanity. This love of humanity is a prudence that Sarah realizes he must abandon in order to achieve his goal of the overman. He realizes that though he loves humanity, he actually shows too much favor to the vain, quote-unquote. This has been holding him back. He is entertained by these, quote-unquote, vain people, so he spares them. He must rid himself of the hope and the enchantments that he feels for mankind. These are prudences that only weigh him down. The fourth prudence Sarah outlines is the chapter. In this chapter is that the fact he must hide himself from the people in order to achieve the overman, because the people are so estranged from greatness that the overman would seem terrible to them in his kindness. Sarah is preparing the people for his absence. He is coming to terms with the will to power that he will need to find in order to master time. The Stillest Hour This final chapter of part 2 shows Sarah as a man torn apart by his double will. Sarah tells his disciples about a voice that came to him at a night during his stillest hour. Quote unquote. The voice goads Sarah to become more like a child. According to the voice, Sarah has grown weak and ineffectual. His love for mankind is keeping him from becoming the overman, and Sarah readily admits that he is weak. In this speech, it is clear that Sarah knows what will is needed to effect the eternal return to the coming of the overman. This will must be able to accept the accident of humanity in times, as well as to show power over time. Sarah is reluctant to speak of this knowledge because he knows what fear it will strike in the hearts of people once he does return with such power. As the speech closes, Sarah weeps openly at, at again having to leave his friends in the middle of the night. He once again walks always alone. The ambulance is still there. And with having said, I'm going to end the episode I wish you the best. Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.